World conquest has been the dream of many an ambitious man. Genghis Khan, Augustus Caesar, Napoleon. Men have been driven to dominate the nations around them, if not the whole world. And that domination comes just one way, military might. Only by force can the nations be conquered. What leads such men to even attempt to rule the known world? And in a word, it would be pride. These are ambitious men wanting their name to be known in all the earth. Pride is what drove Alexander the Great. He wanted to subject all the kingdoms to his will and and conform all other cultures to the Greek way. He inherited his throne at age 20, and by age 30, he had conquered one of the largest territories in world history, made all the way to the Indus River, and he wanted to go further. He wanted to fully invade and conquer India. But his men eventually revolted. They just desperately wanted to go back home and enjoy the fruit of their war. Alexander died just a few years later, and he left no heir. When asked who should assume power, he's reported to have simply said, to the strongest. And afterward, the unity of this biggest empire the world had ever known at that point collapsed. His four generals and, and commanders vied for power, started fighting with one another. A new 40-year war began infighting. After the dust settled, there were four brand new kingdoms dividing up his territory. And that just goes to show you that the same pride that leads men to try and conquer the world also prevents it. Because people don't want to be conquered. They don't want to submit their will to another. They don't want to be subjected to a ruler And so the second they can safely get out from under the dominion of another, they will. And even if you manage to conquer the world, there's someone else with their own pride who will happily take it from you when they can. It's just the way of the world. We've seen this play out in world history time and time again. There's just another difference between the way of the world and the way of the Lord. You ask the men of the world, who will rule the, the nations? Who's, who's going to inherit the earth? And they'll tell you the lions, the, the bulls, the bears. That's what you have to be like. But Christ comes along and he says, no, you, you have it all wrong. It's, it's the lambs. The lambs are the one who are going to inherit the earth. And you have to be more like a lamb. By that, he means that the meek, the mild, the humble, the gentle. And just the very thought sounds laughable to the world which is well accustomed to pride and power. And if you want something, you have to take it by force even. And if you want the nations, you're going to have to conquer them. And can you just even try and imagine a a lamb overpowering a lion? That's not the way to conquest. It sounds backwards to the world to say the meek will inherit the earth. It seems upside down. And it is. But the Lord Jesus came to reveal the true nature of his kingdom His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is upside down to this world, but it is right side up to God. And just as the prophet Daniel saw this stone cut without hands, striking down the kingdoms of the world, then turning into a mountain, filling the whole earth, so will the kingdom of Christ truly overcome the kingdoms of man. That kingdom might not come the way you think. It may not be what you think. We need Christ to tell us more about his kingdom. And that's what he does in the Sermon on the Mount, which is something we've been studying recently. We're going to return to that great sermon today. You can tape your Bibles now and open them to 
Once again, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, we just recently started getting into this sermon, the Sermon Discourse of Christ. It's from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. It's his longest teaching, 111 verses, but they're all framed by the first 10, verses 3 through 12. They're the foundation. This opening section is known as the Beatitudes. It's where Jesus pronounces a series of blessings on his disciples. But these blessings come in an unusual way. Here, Christ exposes us to the upside-down nature of his kingdom, compared to the world at least. And Christ challenges us with what it means to be blessed, what it takes to be blessed. These Beatitudes are paradoxical statements. On the surface, they, they all just seem wrong. Like we've already seen it. For example, verse 5, our, our verse for today, is blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like how it's going to be. But for those with eyes to see, we find here the true nature of Christ's kingdom uncovered. This is a spiritual kingdom. The spiritual nature and that nature will characterize those who will inherit that kingdom. And so anyone who claims to follow Christ should be keenly interested in what Jesus has to say here about his kingdom. This is truly what it means to be blessed. We find them in the Beatitudes. Let's get reacquainted. Let's read through these again, all of them, starting in Matthew 5, verse 3. Christ begins the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we've already made our way through the first two Beatitudes in our time together. Verses 3 and 4, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. We've discovered these are spiritual realities. And that Christ is not talking about uh, financial poverty any more than he's talking about bereavement. Now, he's referring to the one who first has seen his sin before God and has been broken over his spiritual bankruptcy before God. He's come to terms with his sin, and that's led him to then mourn, grieve over his sin, his condemnation, knowing he's hopelessly lost before God. That remorse and regret, though, leads him to a true biblical repentance. If you sense a logical order or flow to these beatitudes, you would be right. These statements have an order to them where each one anticipates the next And we find that very much to be the case with the next beatitude here, the third one. That's our subject this morning. It's found in verse 5. And today we aim to study this third beatitude, just continuing to to round out the nature of Christ's kingdom and what it means to be blessed. We want to further uncover 
this blessing his, he promises. What, what does it mean to be divinely favored, approved by God? He's telling us the secret here. We're digging for treasure in Christ's words, and already we, we've struck a great diamond, but we're not going to stop digging till we uncover the full breadth and width and depth of it in his words. We want to excavate the full nature of the blessing he promises in these beatitudes, that we might see them just embodied in our lives. That's what we're after. We've gone through the first two today. Number three, we can put it this way, blessed are the meek. A third point in this kind of overarching series through the Beatitudes. And blessed are the meek. As you see in verse five, which says, blessed are the meek, or your translation might read gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. We're going to spend all of our time just reflecting and studying this one verse because of that, I'll give you some kind of sub-points just to organize your thoughts. We first need to start with the meaning of meekness. First, the meaning of meekness. I want us to spend a good amount of time laboring to, to really understand what Jesus means by this word meek or gentle. That, that's everything. I mean, if, if you get that wrong, you're going to get everything else wrong about what it implies and the outcome. We, we need to understand what he means when he says, blessed are the meek. Verse 5 in the NASB reads, blessed are, or reads rather, blessed are the gentle. Just about every other translation has blessed are the meek. And in English, I, I think that is the better translation. The English word gentle carries the idea of being you know, calm and nice, and soft and harmless. And these are all nice qualities. It's just not what he means by this word here. The Greek word is praus and meek is probably the best English equivalent And to be meek is to be submissive, compliant, humble in nature, even under provocation. A meek person is tame. We got to take it much further than that. We need to explore and really study that we can be assured what he means. He's promising a blessing for the meek. I want to get that right. And we can safely qualify what this word doesn't mean. This is not talking about being spiritless or spineless. It's not talking about cowardice or a lack of conviction. This is not a docile or passive person. There are some people who are naturally like this. They're mild-mannered. They're unassuming. They're easily pushed around. Their presence in a room is never felt. And some would call such people meek. And this is why the ancient Greeks referred to this word as a vice, not a virtue. This meekness was associated with servility. This belonged to the slaves. But that's not what Jesus means by meek. This word is not talking about a natural quality. This is a spiritual quality. We need to uncover. These beatitudes are all spiritual characteristics. So to help us learn a little more what's behind this word, we can draw on what we know from the Old Testament to begin with. It's worth noting that the same Greek word was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe Moses. Listen to Numbers 12, verse 3. It says that Moses was very humble, meek, same word. It says more than any man who was on the face of the earth. We have biblical evidence telling us Moses was the meekest man on the planet. Now, this does not clearly mean spineless or unassuming. I dare say you could ever be in the same room with Moses and not notice it. He certainly was not passive or docile. So what exactly made Moses meek 
really the meekest man alive at the time? The answer is, he was a complete pushover. But not how you think. Not according to the will of man. No, rather was uh, Moses was made meek because he just lived in total submission to the will of God. Think of how we use the word pushover. That's how the ancient Greeks thought of the word meek. It's not a good thing. It's not a virtuous characteristic to be a pushover. You're like Plato. People can just make you into whatever shape they want. They can easily bend you according to their will and just make you go along with with what they want. That is not a biblical virtue to bend to the will of man. But take that same concept and apply it vertically, the relationship with God. And it does turn into a virtue because before God, it is good and right to be a pushover, so to speak. I mean, what happens when our will runs into God's will? Well, like a car coming up to a a fast-moving train, it should yield. Our will should stop and just get in line with God's will. That's what should happen. That is part of biblical humility, and it's a chief virtue in Scripture because God's will is good, it's wise, it's perfect. Our will all too often is not. And so what made Moses the meekest man on the planet was the fact that he had such a true faith he just completely yielded his will up to God. He just, I'm just here to serve you. It's not my will be done, just yours. And he fully yielded his will up to the Lord. His life was giving over to serving God and exalting God. That meant Moses diminished himself. He lived to exalt God while trusting in God and depending on God. This meekness does not mean powerlessness. This is power under control. It's not being spiritless. It's a broken spirit that's bowed down to God. It doesn't mean being weak-willed. It just means you're no longer self-willed. You might have a strong will, but you use it entirely according to God's will. You can also think of Psalm 37. If you want, you can turn there. to Psalm 37, this is another place in the Old Testament where the same word praus is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. This psalm really helps us understand what Jesus means when he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And that's because most likely Jesus was quoting this psalm when he said, Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. This psalm says pretty much just that. Psalm 37 verse 11 says, The meek will inherit the earth. Sounds pretty similar. The meek will inherit the land. You read this Psalm of David, it it fits a common quandary in the Old Testament how the the righteous seem to suffer while the wicked seem to prosper. But this Psalm puts that problem into an eternal perspective. And David recalls how in the end, the wicked will perish. They, They will, like grass, they will be scorched by the sun. They will wither away. He pictures the wicked as having their swords drawn against the righteous. But in the end, he says, their swords will pierce their own hearts. They will vanish like the smoke. They'll be cut off from the land. And speaking of the land, he says the righteous will inherit the land. Land becomes the central theme of this psalm. It's actually a refrain that those who inherit the land. The land represents the inheritance awaiting God's people. 
And to whom does that inheritance fall? Not the wicked. Verse 11 says, the humble, the meek, they will inherit this land. These are the same people who, verse 3, trust the Lord. They, verse 4, delight themselves in the Lord. Verse 7, they rest in the Lord. Verse 9, they wait patiently for the Lord. This is meekness. This spiritual humility pictures of people who have bowed down to the Lord, not just with their bodies, but with their hearts. They trust God through and through, and they will not abandon his righteous ways, no matter, no matter what happens to them here below. Their hope is just entirely in God to deliver them. This is meekness. Read Psalm 37. This is meekness. God will deliver them because he gives his grace to the humble. And so to be meek means to live in complete submission to the will of God. One commentator put it this way, quote, A meek person is one who feels that he is a servant in relationship to God and who subjects himself to him quietly and without resistance, end quote. You can return to Matthew 5 and and kind of putting together what we've learned so far, you could say, blessed are the gentle. That's fine. I think it'd be better to say, blessed are the meek. I think it's best to say, blessed are the broken. I think that really captures the essence here. <clears throat> the meek are those whose wills have been broken and then brought under the happy submission to God. Picture that the taming of a wild horse. It's a perfect way to understand this word. And what do you know? This Greek word praus was used of taming a wild horse. Mentioned Alexander the Great earlier. He's got a legendary tale of, at a young age of 12, taming the the legendary horse Bucephalus, which took him into many a battle. We, We all know the image of a wild stallion just running around free. This horse has so much power, but it obeys no commands. So it can't be used for travel or battle, for labor or sport. The horse must first be broken, tamed, humble. It has to be made meek. Only afterward will it fully yield itself to the authority of a rider. And once a horse is broken, it will accept a bit in its mouth. It'll take reins on its neck and it will just yield to the will of the rider. The horse still retains all of its power after being broken. It's just as mighty and majestic, but but now all of its might is at the disposal of the rider. And so when the rider pulls up on the reins, the horse will stop. And when the rider kicks his legs, the horse will charge. Even toward battle with gleaming spears, a horse will just charge because that's what the rider said to do. This horse is still powerful and strong, but now it's meek, it's broken, it's under control. It's subject to another. And this really is the perfect picture of what it means to be meek. You know, by nature, we're all more like the wild stallion. We want to go our own way. We we want to do just what, what we want to do. We want to kick and buck God off of our back. We won't have anyone telling us how to live our life or what to do. We just want to do our own will. In a word, we're rebels. and stems from a heart of pride and idolatry. 
but the meek are those who have been broken. They've seen their sin and its consequences. They know only judgment awaits them. But the meek are also those who have looked up and they've seen the Savior, the great writer, Christ, is the only one who can lead them to salvation and bring their souls peace. That's going to happen, though. They have to confess him as God and King, Savior and Master. They have to bow the knee to him and his lordship and recognize him as their king. This really is just akin to true saving faith. And Christ put, put it this way. Mark 8, 34, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. You don't get to the following part until you go through the denying self part. And the meek are those who have done that. They gladly accept Christ as their rider, their their Lord. Because they've seen he's, he's just a good savior. He's just trying to lead me to green pastures and living water. And so now they accept the bit in the mouth. And when King Jesus says, go left, they go left. When he says, go right, they go right. When he says, stop, don't go there. Don't do that thing. Don't don't venture into the darkness. They stop. Why? Because they've submitted their will to the perfect and good will of their Savior. They, They just listen to him. And before salvation, before being made meek, You were bucking and kicking against God. Like we said, you and I, we did all we could to get the Lord off our back. But the meek have been tamed by faith in him. Already a good place to pause and and ask yourself, does this describe you? Do you have a, a type of saving faith that has translated into such meekness, such humble submission and dependence on God? Have you been broken by the Lord in the best way, or are you still wild? You know, it's okay to be strong-willed, but are you self-willed? Do you do just, just what you want to do? At the end of the day, when it comes up to your will and God's will, his word revealed, do you just, you know, I'm just, just going to do my own thing anyway? Or are you now truly broken? You're Christ-willed. You, you actually pray and you mean it when you say, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you yielded your whole life in glad submission? And so you just, you're going to go where Christ leads. You might still stumble. We covered repentance last week, but you ultimately go where he leads. Or ultimately, you just go your own way. You might think of breaking a horse as cruel or mean. I mean, aren't you robbing it of its freedom? Well, but what if a, a huge fire was coming that was devouring the whole land and only you knew the way to escape? And so by taming the horse, really you're, you're saving it because you're the only one that can direct it to that narrow path of salvation. And likewise, this brokenness or meekness before God, it is unto salvation. Our will, our self-will has only gotten us into trouble. And left to ourselves, we only find ruin and suffering, hurt in this life, and then life to come is just judgment. We have brought perdition on ourselves, but Christ has come to free us from the sin that blinds us, to tame us from a, a sinful, rebellious spirit, give us everlasting peace. It's only found, though, by, by bowing to him. But when you find it, 
This is why he says, blessed are the meek. This, this meekness results in a true blessedness. If that's the case, how, how exactly do you obtain this meekness? These beatitudes, they're all spiritual characteristics. So you might question, like, how do I see this characteristic forged in me? And I want to spend a good chunk of time up front making sure we, we really better understand the, the term, the, the meaning of meekness. Like I said, if you get that wrong, you're, you're going to get everything else wrong. But, but now I think we can turn our attention toward a, a second point. Let's address now the means of meekness. And how do you get it? First, the, the meaning of meekness. Second, now the means of meekness. How is such a character formed in you? How, how are you broken? What are the means of being made meek? And let me suggest three ways they all work together. But first, you got the negative approach, which is to see your sin. To see your sin. Meekness, really, it's just the result of going through the first two Beatitudes. That's it. Brokenness comes as a result of seeing your sin and sorrowing over your sin. You're made poor in spirit. You open your eyes to your spiritual bankruptcy. And then you grieve over all of the ruin your sin has brought on you. You see before God, you're not righteous. You're unrighteous. You're not clean. You're defiled. The self-righteous and the self-sufficient, they, they never find themselves unworthy before God. They fool themselves into thinking that, you know, God, God thinks they're just fine. He doesn't really have a problem with them. It's not like they're murderers, but they just fail to grasp the holiness of God and the standard. When you take a cup of crystal clear drinking water, how many little teaspoons of manure would it take for you to not drink the water? Just one. Just one little bit is enough for you to reject the whole thing. And Christ himself later in Matthew 5 is going to tell us God's standard of acceptance. The last verse, verse 48. You just have to be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect, just be as perfect as God and he'll accept you. But you know, I know, we all fall infinitely short of that standard. And that realization that God has already rejected you because of your sin should break you. But that's the only realization that can save you because only those who've seen their sin are those who then fully go to the only hope, the only Savior, Christ, the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave to forgive us all of our sin, to make us righteous. He purifies that cup of water that it's now perfect as God is perfect. That's what he does for us. But it's only the meek who go to Christ with a humble faith for what he offers. And last week we learned that, that the sight of sin and sorrow over sin leads you to what? To repentance. It's where you're turning away from your sin. But you realize what's the other side of repentance? Now, as you turn away from one thing, by definition, you're, you're turning towards something else. And so the flip side of repentance is faith. As you turn away from your sin, you're turning toward Christ by faith. And, and realize that faith itself is an expression of meekness. That, that true saving faith only comes to those who are meek. 
This is the result of a soul being broken by sin, now ready to forsake it and cling to Christ. And so if you want to be made meek, like Christ describes here, you just have to go through the first two Beatitudes genuinely, become poor in spirit, mourn over your sin. Go to Christ and you will find a meek faith result. The second way to be made meek, the first is to see your sin. Second is a positive approach and it's to see God. See God. Just see and behold the glory of God in his written word. That will open up this vast chasm between your sinfulness and his majesty. And that has a way of, of humbling you. It should. And of breaking you. I mean, how else do you think Moses was truly made the meekest man on the planet? He had encounter after encounter with the presence of God and the power of God. No man ever got so close to the glory of God as Moses. We would call Moses great, but he would not say such a thing. He would not exalt himself because he, he saw God's glory in a sense. And, and that just made him so, so low. And Moses was made meek by seeing God. Same thing happened to Isaiah. Or he beheld the glory of God in that throne room vision with the seraphim surrounding him, perpetually proclaiming holy, holy, holy. And what was Isaiah's response to this vision of, of God? It was just utter brokenness. His feet buckled, his heart melted. He couldn't even pretend to stand there like he was okay. And he says in Isaiah 6, 5, he says, woe is me. That means cursed. He's like, I am damned. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Just the sight of God's glory made clear all the defilement that was in him. He thought wasn't there. It all became clear. And that encounter with the glory of God sucked all the pride and the self-righteousness out of Isaiah. What could he say to justify himself? before such a God. He was completely exposed with all of his sin. There's nowhere to hide. But thankfully, this is a God of grace. And he, he came and he took away all of Isaiah's sin. He says it forgave him all of his iniquity. But after that, though, Isaiah was just perpetually broken. This was God taming a wild sinner. And this is what made Isaiah meek and this is what made Isaiah then fit for service. After this, he just, he accepted the bit in the mouth and said, Lord, okay, what do you want me to do? I'm clearly just here to serve you. So tell me what you want me to do. And he was fit to serve the Lord. But Isaiah was made meek by the sight of God. And then a third way to be made meek is suffering. There's good old Suffering. And this is a tool God is apt to use as he sees fit. He will use it to break down his chosen ones that he might build up true faith, a meek faith within them that they might call in his name. There was once a wild stallion of a man named Saul. He was powerful. He had an intense knowledge of God's word and a zeal, he thought, for God as a Pharisee. But he used all of his power to tear down and destroy I mean, I think you could probably lead a tamed horse through an antique store. Or if they're really tame, you could get away with it, lead them through the store, no harm done. But imagine unleashing a wild horse 
in an antique store. And it would just leave a path of destruction behind. All of its power is out of control. That was Saul. And he used his supposed religious zeal just to ravage Christ's church. But the Lord had purposes for him. And, and so the Lord tamed Saul through suffering. I mean, first, the Lord blinded him. He made him bow down. He made Saul confess and recognize his sovereignty and lordship. And then the Lord just continually humbled Saul, who became Paul, all throughout his life through, through suffering. That, that he would yield more and more of his will up to the Lord. It's like Jesus said of Paul, In Acts 9.16, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Just like Moses in the Old Testament, Paul became the meekest man in the New Testament. I mean, later, people turned on him. Even some in the church turned on him, persecuted him, slandered him. And in response, he didn't fight fire with fire. He didn't blast them back. He didn't retaliate. He rather just continued to appeal to them. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul came to just manifest the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I mean, Paul was a man who was still a force to be reckoned with, like, like a gushing river, but he was no longer overflowing his banks. This was power under control, under the control of Christ. And he, he bore the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. This is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And you can count on the Lord, both in salvation and sanctification, to continue to use that the scorching heat of the sun to, to produce, to ripen that fruit in us, the fruit of gentleness. This continues after salvation, because who among us here has truly yielded a hundred percent of their will to the Lord. We're still sinners. We still have a self-will. Sometimes we do go our own way, but those who are truly his, God is faithful to use sometimes even the means of suffering to, to get them more and more his way. God will continue to tame us all life long. Pride is what prevents a man from coming to Christ for salvation. He's too proud to beg, too proud to submit to a Lord. He won't be broken, but God has ways of breaking our pride. That's only a good thing when God's grace humbles us because only the humble are exalted. And in that meekness, you find true freedom, peace for your soul and life. God's grace changes us when we are made meek. Speaking of that change, another point here, third, the results of meekness. Just to carry on here, thirdly, the results of meekness. So if that change happens to you, if if meekness is formed in you, how does it change you? What are the results of this meekness in a person? How else are they blessed? Christ says, blessed are the meek. What are some of the ways this blessedness shows itself? Well, first, meekness changes how you relate to God. Meekness totally changes how you relate to God. Switch analogies from a wild horse to wild children. Have you ever encountered a wild, out-of-control child? Maybe you've had a wild, out-of-control child. 
At an early age, they become just so entitled as if their parents owe them everything. Usually this is brought about by partly being spoiled, partly not being disciplined. But these children live as if they are the center of the solar system and everything revolves around them. They're self-willed, they're untamed, and as a result, they're disobedient. Right? Their parents feel like they've got to win a debate just to get them to do anything. And even when they do occasionally win that debate, it comes with grumbling and complaining. And such children embody the opposite, the exact opposite of meekness. That is pride and arrogance and rebellion. And you, you know all too well how that would displease and dishonor you if you were the parent. I mean, you're their maker and their God-given authority, but how they scorn you. And so it is with the rebellious before God, those who live and just buck against his good will. God is long-suffering, but even his patience with such disobedient children will not last forever. There's going to be a discipline coming. But the meek, however, the broken, are completely changed. They've been humbled by sin and by grace. And so their rebellious spirit has given way to a gentle spirit. Now, have you ever encountered a child with a truly gentle spirit? And it's a blessing, isn't it? Right? Such children recognize the God-given authority of their parents, and so they obey them. And they do so happily. They, they just want to please their parents. They know their parents are not cruel taskmasters. They, they just want what is best for them. And so they, they happily go along with their parents' will. They love their parents. They trust their parents. And accordingly, such children honor their parents. They speak to them with a respectful tone. They don't talk back. They're no longer entitled. They don't make demands of their parents. They humbly make requests and they just happily accept whatever answer comes in return. What would you give for such children? But this too is what it's like for us before God when we have been made meek. We realize God, he's just our good heavenly father. He loves us. His will for us is good. He just wants us to be free from the ravages of sin and its consequences. We've been kicking against him for so long, but, but no more. But the meek are ready to stand before him. They're humble. They're compliant. They're yielded. We, we no longer have to be convinced to obey his word. If there's some so-called Christians like that, it's like you have to seriously convince them to do what, what the Bible says. It shouldn't be that way. Like we no longer place demands on God. We recognize we're not entitled to anything, right? As, as just humans alive on the planet because of sin, we're not entitled to anything before God. Anything good we receive is just a gift of grace. That in turn makes us incredibly thankful. We're going to spend less time grumbling over all the things we don't have and more time just marveling thankfully at everything we do have. Yeah, we're still going to come before God with open hands. We're going to let our requests be made known, but we're just going to place them at his feet, submit to his perfect will, and just accept whatever answer comes in return. And just as a parent would absolutely delight in such a child, so God delights when his people approach him with such a humble and reverent uh, submission. 
Let me give you one more, a second result of meekness in our lives. How does meekness change us? What does it result in? Secondly, it totally changes how you relate to others, right? It changes your relationship with God. It's going to change your relationship with others. You think back to that, the problem child, where not only do they treat their parents terribly, but they probably treat their siblings even worse, right? Being proud, self-centered, self-willed. I mean, they treat their siblings like subjects. They try and assert themselves over one another. They're, they're bossing them around. They're trying to make them do what they want to do. And chances are their other siblings are just as prideful and just as self-willed. So what's the result when two prideful people collide? Conflict, fighting, strife, constant bickering, and continually either by force or manipulation. They're trying to to make the other bend to their will. And the only fruit of this is division. It's not going to produce unity and love. This produces division and enmity. But once again, think of the child who's been made gentle, a child with a gentle spirit, siblings. They're no longer so concerned with, with asserting themselves over their siblings. They're not trying to make them bow down before them. They know that that's not right. It doesn't please their parents. No, rather, they're happy to serve their siblings. They don't mind looking out for their siblings. They're on the same team. They've come to genuinely love their siblings. They delight in just spending time with their siblings. These are the type of kids you can take out to a restaurant with no concerns. There's not going to be any fighting. There's not going to be any meltdowns, no bickering. They're at peace with their parents. They're at peace with one another because they've been made meek. Again, what's the price tag you would put on having children like that? That's what God wants his children to be like. And that should be the result when we've been transformed by God's grace and made meek. And our relationship with one another should become radically new after we've been made meek. Before meekness, your pride tells you you are better than most people, right? Like they probably should be serving you. But all such ego ends at the foot of the cross. Yeah, you might be able to jump six inches higher than the person next to you. But if the standard is jumping to the moon, like what are you really boasting of? You're not even close. You're not really that better. In reality, you and I, we're not better than anyone else. Even the non-Christian. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I are no better. We're simply sinners saved by grace. That realization should draw out from you grace in dealing with others. That's how you gain patience. You become long-suffering like God. You're not easily riled or offended. And even when you are, it's not going to lead you quickly to vengeance. You just trust God, the Father, to judge, to discipline. He'll do what is right. You're no longer so desperate to defend yourself. In meekness, you've divested yourself of ego. I mean, it just matters less to you what other people say about you, what other people think about you. That doesn't rule your world anymore. You just care about what, what God says of you. You're just trying to be pleasing to your heavenly Father. And that controls how you interact with others, and that, that's going to lead to an overflow of generosity and humility. And keep in mind, this meekness is meant to be at the heart of the church. This has to characterize 
all of us, if we're going to stick together in one body, like that tamed horse Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, same word, related word, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Without that meekness in the mix there, that the church has no chance of staying together. Really, all of our relationships are doomed without it. Like it says in the parallel, Colossians 3, 12 and 13, where he says, those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I mean, last week we reflected on how repentance would transform a marriage, for example. I mean, if only couples could just each and every day humble themselves, confess their sins to one another, and exchange forgiveness with each other, the sin that divides all relationships would lose its power. But again, you have to see how that repentance is just part and parcel with this meekness. This is just the other side of that coin where you're not out to win every argument. You're not trying to prove anyone wrong. You're not going to resort to tearing the other person down or fighting dirty. You're not trying to assert yourself or bend your spouse to your will. No, rather, your will has already been bent and broken by the Lord. And as hard as it is, you're ready to lay down your will and yourself for your spouse to not be served, fight and push and pull to be served, but you're ready to to just lay down and serve. Remember, Christ did this first. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. And we're called to follow the way of the Lord. That goes to marriage as well. But the meek are those who are, they're no longer trying to steal life from others, but they're ready to give their life for others. And that type of sacrificial love is the glue that will bind a lasting godly marriage. But speaking of the Lord, though, again, you have to remember, as hard as you might think this is, as, as upside down as you might think this is, he came and did it first. He, he showed the way of meekness first. This is just the way of the Lord. He modeled meekness perfectly. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? Well, he just said in verses 3 and 4. That's where he said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of one another. That, that's a definition of meekness and how it results in our relationships. We are to manifest the humility and meekness of Christ in our lives as Christians. And we're meant to look to him as our example. How did Jesus himself go about and model meekness? Paul tells us in the verses that follow, verse 6 of Philippians 2. It says about Christ, although he existed in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of, literally it says, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you don't think that's a big deal, remember, he's God the Son come down to do this. But he humbled himself completely under the Father's will. He came to serve the Father's will perfectly and entirely. And now we're called to do the same. If we just did this, we would see our lives transformed, our worship transformed, our relationships transformed. This is all just to God's glory and our own good. God has designed this just for our own good. For indeed, as we read this morning, those who humble themselves under God's mighty hand, 1 Peter 5, 6, they will be exalted at the proper time. And speaking of that, the Lord Jesus himself will certainly be exalted for his meekness as the next verses in Philippians 2 assert, verse 9, says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Lord Jesus will be exalted above all creation. And God the Father will exalt him at the proper time. But here's the marvel is that by his grace, he will also exalt all those who are in Christ, those who recognize his son, confess him as Lord, who've bowed to him as king, they too will be exalted. They get to share in Christ's reward. And so we can finish with this. Number four, the reward of meekness. The reward of meekness. It, it comes with a, a blessing, a reward. And Christ said himself in the Beatitude, verse five, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. There's the reward. This is, this is the paradox of the Lord's way. And the world says the meek and the mild, they, they never get anywhere. They don't get anything. They're, they're pushovers. If you want something, you have to take it. And if you want the world, you have to conquer it. But no, Christ says that the very earth itself is going to just be given as an inheritance to the meek those who, who bow before the Lord in humility as slaves are the ones who are going to receive the world. And the amazing thing is the Lord picks them up and he makes them in his kingdom, not slaves, but sons and daughters, co-heirs to his inheritance. The world is his inheritance. He has bought it with his blood. He will inherit the earth, but he gives and shares this reward with those who have come to him. That inheritance, Matthew says, and Christ says here, is the earth. And the reward Jesus mentions here looks forward to the, the eschatological hope of God's people. This is not talking about heaven per se. Matthew in his gospel always distinguishes between heaven and earth. So when he says the meek inherit the earth, it's not just talking about, you know, going to heaven one day. Earth means earth. This looks forward to the day when Christ returns to reclaim the world. Jesus will come back and he will take back God's earth and he will rule and reign and his redeemed will be there with him. This is all by grace. We get to share in this reward, the inheritance of 
the world. It is true that the Messiah came the first time, and he came the first time as a meek and mild Savior. He didn't come the first time to destroy the wicked. He came to save the lost. This is why, for example, as he's riding in towards his death to Jerusalem, he's not riding a horse. He's riding a donkey. Matthew 21, 5 says, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle, same word, and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's not a noble animal, but he chose that to represent his own humility. Here's God the Son come to die for you. The king came to die for his subjects. But the day of God tolerating man's sinful rebellion is not going to last forever. That he has deemed to send his Christ a second time. And the second time, it will not be a mission to save, but to judge. Revelation 19 tells us about that day. Christ will come back. And on that day, he will not appear so meek and mild. That he will not be riding a donkey. Rather, he returns as king to conquer. Revelation 19.11 says he's riding a white horse. He's come in righteousness to judge and wage war, it says. None will be able to stand against him in that day. He's the Lord. It says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Verse 15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. So that with it, he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thighs, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This world is going to be conquered. Not by Alexander the Great or any man. Only the God-man, Christ. Wickedness will end. Rebellion will cease. And the Lord is going to take back his world that he made. But in the restoration, the marvel is that the world is given to the meek. Right? A bunch of lambs come with him and inherit the world. Those who've confessed Jesus as their King of Kings and Lord of Lords now, they will join him and be with him forever. And this gracious offer is still held out to you today. You still have time to repent and believe, but already we've learned you have to pass through the first three Beatitudes. You can probably see where the trajectory is going, but you must pass through the first three Beatitudes. You have to first be made poor in spirit. You must mourn over your sin. That breaks you and makes you meek, and you go to him in a repentant faith. As you do that, Christ promises to receive you, justify you. He will transform you. He promises to break you and tame you, but that is the best thing that can ever happen to you because he gives you his eternal rest. Just like he promised, and as we read this morning, Matthew eleven twenty eight through through 30, that Christ invites, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You've experienced that the pain and suffering of just life in a fallen world is sin. There's a deep soul weariness we all know. Christ is the only place to go. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. He says, for I am gentle. It's the same word. I am gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let us follow our meek and gentle Savior 
here and hereafter. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we we praise you for your word revealed to us, these secrets, mysteries of the kingdom revealed. And as we read these Beatitudes, indeed, at first blush, they all appear upside down, backwards. It's just, this is not the way of the world. This is nothing according to uh, what we know. But in your, your word revealed, we see this is the way. It's the way of Christ, the Lord, who came first and showed us the way to life. That Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life. None come to the Father but through him. And and that way is a way of meekness. It's a way of humility. It's a way of, of bowing low and confessing your God. In our sin, Lord, we all live and operate as if we're God. We sit on the throne. We've pushed you off. We, we rule our own lives. We won't have it any other way. We thank you for the mercy that, that breaks us and that shows us the folly and the judgment of such a way. And for those here this morning, those who have not been humbled, who are still walking in pride and self-will and just living as they please, as humbling as it is, open their eyes and help them not just swallow their pride, but crush it, crucify their pride as they just confess, we, we are ruined. It's not just that we live among a people of unclean lips. We have the unclean lips, Lord. We, we are lost before you. But, but in coming to Christ with that humility, the Savior has already come and died and risen to save us and to transform us and to make us glad And it's a blessed place to be under the submission to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Continue to humble us all throughout life. Help us to subject even more of our will to you. We need to be tamed through and through. Do that work in us, Lord. We we submit to you and look forward to the inheritance to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.